Well, this is going to be a fun conversation. I was introduced to Tony Michaelidis in um, by LinkedIn, by Dennis Patoko. And um, once you hear some of his stories, you'll understand why I was intrigued when I looked at his profile after that introduction. Tony, thank you so much for joining me on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, Sarah. Absolutely. So um, I always start with the question, can you tell me something about yourself that most people might not know about you? And the reason I ask this question is that I love for our listeners to get kind of a different view, a more, um, I, I guess, multi-dimensional view of who you are starting at the very beginning. So what do you think? Do you have something you could share with us? Is that, is that like line of brief kind of where I came from type thing? Because my story, if you like, in a nutshell, is working with people whose records I'd bought as a kid. So the fantasy side of that to me still to this day as i'm an elder statesman is that doesn't happen to a kid from the north of england you know because careers officers don't come to school and teach you about things like that you know it's not kind of the real world and to have a job that's an extension of your hobby i always feel you know for want of a better word honored but what would people not know about me that's a difficult one really because i have a big mouth and i talk about everything so people <laughs> who don't know me probably know more than they should <laughs> well what about something that happened in your childhood that you you listened to a particular musician and decided this is this is it i'm i'm working with this guy sometime in my future well, I've had a lot of, um, I've been doing a lot of podcasts and interviews, radio and TV things of late, because I have a new book out, Moments That Rock, you know, so I, you get the, the standard questions, what's David Bowie like and things, but somebody asked me a really interesting question the other day, um, and uh, there's a story in my book about meeting Led Zeppelin when I was 15, you know, so all the same kids that went to the same school and bought the same records didn't get to go backstage like I did, you know, and to have that happen to you when you kind of meet your heroes is something I, I never lost sight of, you know. Um, and the guy asked me the question, he said, like, uh, he said, what do you think the music industry taught you in all those years that might have helped you as a 15 year old, um, you know, getting to meet Led Zeppelin? And I kind of smiled in a way to say that good question. And um, I said, well, strange as it sounds, not a huge amount, really, because when I say I come from a different world, I mean, I kind of look at you know, things like diversity and all the boring things that are happening in the world today. And to do things like this, where you bring a little bit of inspiration and happiness is really important to me, like it is to you. Um, and I said, but, you know, when I was kind of six, for instance, um, I realized like on the school playground that I didn't want to hang out with this jerk, you know, this six year old who was a bully. So that was kind of like, because they don't teach you interpersonal skills at school. You know, they teach you geography and maths and, you know, stuff like that. Um and then um, the other thing is when I was in my teens and I discovered girls and I had to stand in front of them and ask them out, you know, not like swipe right, swipe left and fear rejection, you know, and think, oh, my God, if she says no, would I ever ask another girl out again? So, you know, to, to, to just brief that down a little, it's like I kind of learn about, you know, the things that you should learn growing up, you know, you, you develop your communication skills. So I had no idea as a six-year-old or a 15-year-old for that matter that I was going to end up working in an industry that involved the ability to communicate with people. So I had kind of, you know, a, a real-world experience, if you like, that I wasn't kind of one trying to find out. But, but, but I always look back on that and I feel that that was a great kind of learning curve, you know. So when I had to get in front of people to make them aware of the records and the artists that was promoting. I think I had communication skills that I developed early. So that's probably, um, that might be something people don't know. That's, that's kind of unusual. When I think about a six-year-old figuring these things out, um, I would say that most six-year-olds aren't that aware of figuring things out. So maybe well, this was something about you that was unique, was that even at six and at 15, you were realizing that you were gaining skills. Um, I know that that's not how I was thinking about it. <laughs> it was, um, so so maybe, maybe that's what it is, is that early on. And the reason I say that is some people can look back and say, I knew then, I knew then what I was going to do. And, um, and maybe this was part of your, I knew then I was learning these skills because, um, I interviewed Duke Robillard many years ago. He was one of my first 
interviews on this podcast. Phenomenal blues musician. He's in his 70s now, um, still putting out great music, still working with people like Madeline Peru, and um, started Roomful Blues in the DC area. And he said, I knew at six that I was a guitar player, that I was meant to do this. And he actually went so far as to say, I think that I actually had a previous life as a guitar player, that this wasn't my first time around. That, that's interesting. And I, I don't dispute that. But you see, when I mean, in my book, I talk about wanting to play for Manchester United, you know, which kind of every kid probably in the north of England was talking right. about. And then when I was kind of 15, I wanted to be a rock star. So I had dreams and aspirations. So to, if I was that's to not kind the same of, thing, though. No, wait a minute. But if I was to say that I wanted to be a musician, yes, I did want to be a musician and I got in a band. The difference being I was crap musician. So I had to kind of leave the band. I got the job because we had the biggest room to rehearse in. So my friends from school came together. Good guitar player, good drummer, lousy bass player. So I learned that. So I could say I had dreams and aspirations, but I also had a reality check and thinking, hmm, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that Duke Rebler didn't have that. Like he just knew. And the the irony is that his mom wouldn't let him play guitar. His older brother was significantly older than he was, had a guitar and his mom was like, nope, I'm not letting you play the guitar. I don't want you to go into music. This would have been in the sixties. Right. And he's like, nope, yeah, the nope. proper job. And the, he would, go and sneak his brother's guitar and play on his brother's guitar. And the, the best part of the story was that for the science fair, he convinced his dad to help him build an electric guitar as part of his science fair project. So that was his <laughs> first real guitar that was his. So um, yeah, there's a difference, but it seems to me that sometimes as a kid, we know something about ourselves, even if we, it, that's not aspirational. Like um, my sister knew that she, was a singer. Maybe not. She, she didn't, I don't think she had visions of, of grandeur, you know, being a rock star or anything, but she knew as a little kid that she was a singer at three, four, five years old, you would ask her what she was and she would say a singer. And it was never a professional goal necessarily. Um, but there are some things you just innately know about yourself, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I just disagree with you about me because um, I mean, if I if I just end, if I just ended that bit to say when I'd left school, I went to further education college in England, which was perfect for people like me who were done with school but not quite ready for work. So I right. went to a college and I did a course in business studies and it's the least of my skills. So then I wanted to kind of think I was going to be a lawyer. And then it was time to leave college and I got like a lousy job. And I sat in an office where, next to a guy who started, was counting down the hours from a Monday morning to go to the pub on a Friday night. Uh, oh. So there was nothing motivating or, or inspiring me. And I actually picked up a coffee with the local paper going home. And I looked at the classified ads, which I never do. Um, and there was a job for a sales representative um, for a label called Transatlantic. And I kind of went home and I thought about it and, you know, this and that. And I went to work and I started gazing out the window and I went into the local HMV catalogue and it was folk and jazz, which I was buying Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple records. So I know nothing, knew nothing about it. <laughs> but all my friends who, who had the same paper, who read the same papers and things like that could all have applied for that job. I'm not saying that I'm any better than them, but when they got proper right. jobs, lawyers, accountants, bank managers, whatever, I, I went for a job. And there's no qualifications for something like that. Being a fan isn't a qualification. But I thought, you know, I don't have a job in the music industry. If I don't get it, I still don't have a job in the music industry. So right. nothing nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I didn't get it. And they employed some clown who fell off a hill and phoned me back like six months later. The story's endless, don't worry. Um, and I did get that job. You know, then all of a sudden I'm kind of 20 years old and I'm in the music business. And that was kind of like a wow moment. But really, even all these years later, I go back and I can remember that first day. So that what was, was the kind first of day like. Let's hear it. The, the first day was 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 amazing. But you see, you got to remember that the, the music industry then was was run by um, uh, music people, you know, people who, who really shaped, you know, what we're listening to today, not accountants and lawyers who kind of run it now about, you know, market share. And they don't develop artists in the way that they did. 
Um, I forgot your question. What was it? <laughs> that first day. I want to hear about your first the fir- day. The first day was just like, it, it's really interesting because when I started my own company and employing people, I never employed anybody who um, who had ever worked for a record company. I just employed people that I thought had that certain something. And I gave them one piece of advice. I said, whatever you screw up on, I'll pull you out of. And it reminded me of my first day because I was 20 years old. I was selling records to major outlets in major cities, you know, vans off uh, out the back back of a van. But you know what, Sarah? I went out every single day to prove to that guy who'd employed me that it was the best decision he'd ever made giving me a job. Mm. And I think in subconsciously, I might have tried to instill that into people working for me, giving them the confidence of thinking, hey, you might screw up on something, but you won't get sacked. Um, right. You know, you learn from it. And, you know, I came from a generation of people that made it up as we went along. There were no music schools. And, you know, people profess real world education. Um, But I don't subscribe to that in in music. I think your real world education, listen, you don't learn how to drive a car until you pass your test. You learn what you need to do, but it's not until you get out on the road that that you really know what to do. Right. So you're in the van. Um, did, did you have to go pick up the van? Was it like at a different location? And and who greeted you? No, I went to London on the train to pick up the van and drive okay. it home. Um, what so was the drive like? uh, it was exciting because I was like, you know, I had this big, I mean, it was a big van. It was like, you know, it's an old Mercedes van with like 7,000 albums on it. Right. And I was driving that back. I mean, if I, if, if, if in those days, if there were iPhones and things, I probably would have videoed my journey home. Cause I would have come home and looked at this big daft grin on my face, you know, because yes. like I say, I mean, I, I couldn't wait to get started. And when I did, um, you know, it was kind of like, I, I wouldn't say I went out with fever pitch excitement, but I was, raring to go for want of, of a better word you were. I, um, I want to go back though i want to go back that couldn't have been your first day you had to go to london and learn what you were supposed to do right before you picked up the van did who talked to you well you you're talking to me like i had a proper job there was no there was no real sale the sales manager a guy called ray cooper came up to manchester to kind of interview me but um, I, I won't go into it. I explained the interview in my book, you know, which was it was more like a, a kind of a, a, an initiation, like you're getting the Hells Angels. You know, we went in this dodgy topless bar and he was spitting out of his sandwich at me. And you fancy the gig, man, you know, I mean, we're talking 1974 here. We're talking like <laughs> a different awesome. time. Well, that's and, why and I wanted to and then it. like <laughs> and that was that was kind of on a, on a Wednesday, I think. And then I started like on the Monday. Um, and in between, I went down to pick my van up, came back. All the stock was in it from the warehouse. And I just had a list of calls to go to. So I went to like my first shop. And the first thing I was doing was walking in and introducing myself to the buyer, letting them know that I was the new kid on the block, so to speak. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I don't have like, you know, this kind of um, video evidence and stuff you'd have nowadays because everybody films everything. But but I probably, if I, if I was to, you know, go back and think about it. I probably had an inane smile on my face where, you know, I, yes. I, I was just loving the thought of doing what I was doing, but I was also loving the thought of meeting new people and, yeah. you know, finding out like, you know, what store preferred, what type of music and things like that. Because I think if, if you're kind of totally awake to the possibilities of, of, you know, keeping this job as much as anything, you look at every aspect of it, you know, and it's uh, the whole thing is, is, and when I moved into PR, I mean, all my entire career has been about relationship building, you know. So Mm. I used to say people didn't play my records because they liked me. They listened to them because they respected me. So I I can't think of a day that um, I went to work and, um, you know, I I never had that, oh, God, it's Monday tomorrow or anything like that. I I always had, like, real enthusiasm. I think that relates with people. They can see that you're enjoying themselves. So you're not doing it for the money. Well, I wasn't doing it for the money. It was hardly anything back then. Right. Well, I would agree with that. <laughs> and that is a perfect segue into the whole theme that I've been working through over the past few um, episodes of this podcast, which is around identity, authenticity, and relevance. And um, I love what you're saying about just being, knowing that you were excited for this, for those two reasons, yeah. that it was music which you already had a love for, but it was also relationship building. So um, when you think about writing your book and what you're doing next, 
how do you um, embrace those things in your work now because you're not doing what you were doing before? Well, the interesting thing, Sarah, is like, um, yes, I'm not doing what I did now, did then. But to be honest, the reason I'm here, I've been in America 18 years ago, 18 years, 18 years. Um, and the reason I came here was the music industry was falling apart around me and I hadn't done anything wrong. But I had a staff of like eight or 10 people with everything that came with it, like company cars and, and you know, all your telephone calls were paid for then. I mean, you had to pay for your Internet, I had to pay. I think it was $80, $100 a quarter to to rent like a, a photocopy, which you can buy for like 50 bucks nowadays. So the overhead was quite expensive. Um, but but I, I kind of did my Ziggy Stardust. I, I kind of found myself doing what people like David Bowie did back in the day by reinventing themselves um, and just coming out here. And I mean, they, they call it like innovative and stuff. I call it like flying by the seat of my pants, you know, because I quite like that energy that, that not knowing what's around the corner comes you know um so yeah i, I think um hang on i'm veering off into the abyss now bring me back <laughs> no bring it's me working back. it's working so um Be when you think about <laughs> well you've you've um expressed that your the meaning in your work the the thing that really resonates with you in your work and has for your entire career so far is building relationships and being in the industry, being around music because it's so important to you. So how are you finding meaning and relevance in your work now? I mean, I'm sure it has a lot to do with writing that book and publishing it, but what else are you doing? And and let me give you some context for well, this. Um, just there are a lot yeah. of us that we put so much of our identity in the work we do that we forget that we bring so much more to our work than um, than we do to one particular job. Do you see what I mean? Like our identity it sh doesn't need to be wrapped up in a title or in a place that we're sitting. It has to be in what we bring to wherever we sit, that purpose. So what are you doing now? Because I know our listeners are curious about maybe inspiring them for ideas of what they can do to make sure they're continuing to build meaning and relevance in their lives? Well, that's a good question because the thing is, it's like people ask me if I'm, if I miss, I miss my job. I said, well, what is there to miss? My job doesn't exist today, you know, because, you know, we had to phone around radio stations and find out what they were playing. We didn't click a button and everything would be downloaded. And then we just sent it off <laughs> to the record companies and the managers to let them know. I mean, that's not being tested and everything, but the, the thing is like, Listen, nothing lasts forever. If you're in your 40s and you're a footballer, you're not going to play at that level again. And I'd work with, you know, artists of the caliber of, you know, Bob Marley, The Police, Genesis, David Bowie, you 2 um, And pretentious as it sounded, I kind of supposed I wanted to leave my legacy in place. So I couldn't do what I did. But the thing is, I came here um, and I had done a radio show back in the UK for 12 and a half years. And I love that because it was a great opportunity to turn people on to, to music that I had access to that they didn't. So, you know, I had 70,000 people in the northwest of, of England listening to me and stuff. And, and the other thing is when I went out, um, you know, when I came here and stuff, it took a little while. I worked for a music think tank to start with. That didn't work, you know. But, you know, the, the thing is I come from an industry where you walk the walk and talk the talk. And if somebody tells me something, um, I believe they can do it. So I work with people that the problem is, Sarah, is that when you work in an industry like this, kind of people get excited and all of a sudden they they start, you know, trying to impress you. And, and you know, they know people who've worked at a record company. They know bands. They know this. And, I, 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 you know, without being pretentious, I've, I've dined with rock royalty. I don't have people like David Bowie sat in front of me trying to impress me. And I feel like saying, just be normal, you know. So the thing is, when I when I certainly now more than like my first half of being here, um, I kind of I write and talk about it. So I have a podcast called Moments That Rock. I mean, you know, I've got, I've even kind of branded myself because you know I in my podcast I interview artists and music industry insiders, and I have them share their stories. Um, and it's great because my practice is the same as you're doing with your podcast. If you like to listen to what you're being, what you're digesting at your end, um, then why shouldn't your listeners, you know? Um, so I do a podcast. Um, this is my second book. Um, I do speaking. Um, and really, I, I'm trying to kind of 
there's a generation growing up that haven't had it to miss it, you know. So if I if I share stories, I have a I have a um my next project is gonna be a series of ebooks and audiobooks called Lessons Learned from Rock and Roll. And to give you a, a classic example, you know, I mean the new rock stars are like developers. So if you equate something to somebody that, that everybody's heard of, and and in this case, Bruce Springsteen. So how come Mr. Uh, developer, Mr. New Rockstar, do you leave your job every two years? Have you heard about this guy who they call the boss? Um, well, guess what? He's had the same staff for over 40 years. The only two that have left have died. How come he manages to retain his staff and you people don't? You just move on. So it's a great lesson for the corporate American wherever about retention, you know. Mm. Um, but because it involves a guy everybody's heard of, they listen to it differently. And when you talk about you know, the likes of, of an icon like David Bowie, who, whose legacy will remain forever. I mean, he saw the internet coming before any label. Um, and the thing the thing with an artist like that was he was constantly evolving. Now, when I was growing up um, doing my job, I was managing creativity every day of my life. But the thing is, it wasn't in the dictionary. If you have like business school now, innovative management and managing creativity, the two buzz topics. But I kind of grew up with all that around me. And, and I just wanted to go back one second to those words that kind of really energized me, like authenticity. Um, I'm, I mean, I was party to a company that did a survey of 30,000 millennials from all over the world a few years ago. And the two things they look for are, are authenticity. And the second thing is it has to come from a reliable source, right? Well, the reliable source bit is if somebody hears me on here um, and they've never heard of me or anything and they get curious and they find out and, and they like what I'm doing and they share that with their people on social networks and stuff like that, then, you know, they will accept me because the reliable source is their friend. So, but you know what? There's not that much difference in me going out as a 15-year-old, getting a train to Manchester on a Saturday with my pocket money, buying an album, coming home and not couldn't wait to get around to my friend's house to turn it on to him. But I found it. So I have the bragging rights. Do you know what I mean? Ah, so the authenticity. Okay. Yeah. The, the, and that's that's what I mean about working things out now that that mm -hmm. kind of makes so much sense. And I think the 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 authenticity thing, which becomes like because millennials get like, um, you know, a really bad press, you know, about Encyclopedia Britannica, Britannica. I mean, they have serious to tell them everything. So what do they need me for? Um, but the. But the interesting thing is that, that you know, I, I used to say to people back in the day when it comes to authenticity, I say, listen, if you think I'm the biggest jerk you've ever met, I won't let you down next time because I'm going to be exactly the same. <laughs> yes. Well, there's a consistency. There. And I, I like that. I, I like that in as much as, you you know, it's, it applies to anything, though, Sarah. I mean, like even dreadful things like abusive relationships. If somebody's hit you. They will hit you again. Might be tomorrow, might be next week, might be next year, might be in five years, but it'll happen again because, you know, I'm a great believer in first impressions count. You know, you always remember so, people the first so time you met So what you're saying is... So I'm very comfortable in that. So what you're saying is that authenticity is a, is consistency of personality or consistency of behavior? Well, I think it's... I, 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 I'm privileged in a way to think that I didn't have to work on it because... You know, I, I want people to be honest and truthful with me. It's been kind of, it, it's been to my detriment at times because people have told me they can do something and they can't. Instead of like being honest enough, I, I sit around waiting for something to happen with you know, going into it because what was then you just move on. Um, but I like people to, you know, um, I mean, I met a guy last night. I went to this entrepreneur social club, a local event they have every Thursday. And this guy was making like videos that were, Surreal, really, but he was he, he, his actual introduction was he was a musician, but he was a musician that was trying to take music in a different way. And I was honest enough to say, listen, I don't know what all the buttons on my iPhone do. I'm not really the person to help you, you know. Um, so instead of leaving him up the path and not being able to help him on anything, I was said, well, I'll, I'll take a look at what you're doing, but uh, I, I don't profess to understand it. And that's not making me thick. That's just making me honest. No, I think there's like this interesting dynamic here between honesty and authenticity. And I think they're really different things because if, if authentic is something that's consistent, where, where do we explore? How do we grow as, as where is our personal growth and transformation? If authenticity is defined as being something consistent, as opposed to being honest, which consistently honest is one thing, 
that's a I think there's an important distinction there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I didn't kind of relay it um, in the best way to understand. I mean, when authenticity for me is is kind of turning up and being who you know you are, rather than trying to be something to impress people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think you know if it's contrived in any way or anything, then you know people would see through that. So I just take it or leave it. I am the easiest to work with because they realize it's not all about them. It's about a team of them because that's the only way I can be by being, by being comfortable in my own skin. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm trying to get to people to tell them what I'm doing, but I'm not trying to impress them or anything. So I, I think the two overlap. There's got to be a certain amount of honesty and authenticity, hasn't there? Oh, absolutely. Totally agree with that. And, and I, I guess the thing that always comes to my mind is this idea that, um, authenticity has to come from the person who's doing it as opposed to some external force. Like I, I can't tell you what's authentic and what's not for you. Um, I can see through somebody trying to bullshit me Yeah, that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're being inauthentic, that they may be authentically a bullshitter. <laughs> I mean, well, well, yeah, that's I, I can't tell them they're true. not being authentic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. But, but the thing is, even even in the job that I did for all those years, you know, it's kind of like you kind of sense the ones that are, have got an opportunity to make it and the ones who haven't, you know, because right. the ones who just have a little bit of overnight success, uh, the assholes, for want of a better word, you know, um, they're the ones that give you the runaround. They think they're rock stars, you know, and the ones that are kind of are the real deal are the authentic, authentic, the authentic ones who just have a confidence and belief in the ability to communicate what they're doing to others, and therefore they establish a following. I mean, it's weird because you look at all things that happen now, um, and it was so much harder back in the day to get to people. I mean, I always say, like, you know, you get somebody like Bono that, you know, when you two were playing, like in the early days, I saw him play to like 11 people. You know, they came out after the gig to meet every single person that wanted to meet them. So they become like real in, in that person's world. Could you imagine Bonner going right. back to a, a hotel room or even sitting in a van, driving to another gig and, and contacting, yeah. you know, getting like 50 fans in Japan, going to bed and waking up and having 500. We have a different, you know, influencer is a different <laughs> word now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, influencer imagine. to me is, is well, it, it's hard because I, you know, I don't want to be like sounding like this boring old man, but you know, the, the word influencer, it, no disrespect and it's not sexist or anything, but it's not a 12 year old girl jumping out up and down on the bed, putting makeup on and things. I mean, I think that can go the other way because well, you have those girls that struggle with not being as pretty as this girl, you know, Tony, I think and she becomes an influencer and they have a mental I, issue problem. And I, I think, um, I think the important thing here to, to remember is that they may be an influencer, but that doesn't necessarily make it a good influence. Because anyone who influences others and gets people to listen to them, even if they're crap, they're still an influencer, but it's definitely not a positive influence. And I think that's where we get kind of wrapped around the spoke is this whole idea of wanting to influence for the wrong reasons. Like what, why are we influencing? Let's take a moment and think about why we're doing something that we're doing, how how do we want to be perceived later on? Um, and the reason I, I go into this idea is that it kind of drives me crazy when people just do things for the sake of likes or for the sake of the word influencing without really considering what am I influencing? And I keep coming back to the movies of the 80s that I grew up with because I'm in my early 50s now. And in the 80s, we had movies like Pretty in Pink and 16 candles where they were highly influential. And I'm, I look back now and I cringe at how much I liked that movie, 16 candles. There's, there's date rape in that movie. And, and we all thought that that was okay. So I look at these things now and I'm thinking, why are we not more concerned about what we're influencing and how we're influencing well, without without going the political route for obvious reasons, because we're all sick to death of that. But you see, you get people who see it as an opportunity. And I mean, you know, I don't mind mentioning his words, you know, Alex Young. Oh. You know, he can go and talk for 
10 years about like something like Sandy Hook and, and he doesn't care about devastating people because he's making, you know, lots of money exactly. as a result of it. Well, you know, I don't know how people, I don't know how people like that sleep at night, you know, and if he well, goes to prison for is, the rest of his life. Good. The question is, um, has, did he ever stop to think about it? No. Did, did, no. did he ever stop to think, um, what is my legacy? Holy shit. I'm going to yeah. die lonely. <laughs> I, just, I don't think they care. I think they're just they're just obsessed by the fact that, you know, and we we do live in an age power. of, you know, yeah. so much of it reminds me of Charles Manson's era. You know, it's like a cult. They just follow the particular people who are outrageous and full of shit. And I have no respect for those person. You know, they can have as many islands as they want. You know, if they want to think that that's going to make them sleep at night, they're never going to be in my world. So, right. you know, I just I just feel that there are too many people that are, that are for want of a better word, influenced by exactly people. That, I mean, and do you remember Andy Warhol's famous saying, like, you know, everybody should be famous for 15 minutes? I mean, that's come back to haunt him. Because no. I worked with Simon Cowell for seven years. So I could I could see those bands being manufactured and you know reality TV coming in and stuff. We did live in an age without the Kardashians and American Idol and everything. So so much of, of where we are now is, is kind of manufactured, I think. And you know, a lot of the things that I, I'm looking at from a distant perspective, and so much of it just stinks of insecurity where people just have that burning desire to be noticed, but they don't realize for all the wrong reasons. Right, right. I mean, and take take a guy like Mark this... Chapman. You know, Mark Chapman killed Don Lennon, John Lennon. He's everybody knows who he is now. But there's there's a difference between fame and notoriety. You know, um, right. uh, and that's the sad thing. There are people out there that 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 can just kind of feel that they can get recognition for doing the most disgusting things. Right, and I've definitely seen that. So the question is for our listeners. If you were to wrap this all up in your lessons about meaning and purpose and um, relevance, what what would that be? Like, I know that generally the listeners to, of this podcast are really thinking about these things. How am I being influenced? Who am I influencing? What is what does my behavior say about me, and and how does that affect my relationships? So. If you were going to wrap this up in a nutshell, based on your experiences, what would that be? Well, I mean, a lot of it sounds like cliched, you know, in a way. But, but I think like, you know, coming from that school of needing to sleep at night, you know, the authentic side of things is really important. But also the fact that, you know, be true to yourself, you know, don't find yourself being led up a, a a path to uncertainty just because somebody who has the ability to kind of lure you into their bizarre world, mm -hmm. um, you know, stand back a bit and look at things. And I think as, as much as anything, um, a lot of, you know, as you grow up, you never stop growing up is about the people around you. And I'm, I'm really selective, even to the extent of two years of a pandemic has made me realize that there's some people that I haven't seen that I haven't missed. And that's not being rude. It's just being no, more kind of selective. You know, I've got two. I've got two kids. They're grown up. My daughter was forty this week. Um, my son's mid thirties. I had staff that were relying on me for for getting paid to pay their rent and mortgages and stuff. So I've spent my time helping others. And there comes a time in your life where you stand back and say, "Hey, what about me?" And that's not being selfish towards others. It's just putting yourself in the mix. So, like now, I'm selective in in where I go and what I do. Um, and being in control of my own destiny, for want of a better word. I mean, as we speak now, I'm about to launch my first Facebook reel, basically because I've been, you know, nagged into it by people because everybody tells me that, you know, I do really well. People will love my stories and things. And I am feeling that, that I'm about to turn up. You know, I've got a book. I have a responsibility, like I said to somebody the other day. I'm not telling them to buy their book. I'm letting them know that I've got a book out. So I'm creating awareness, you know. Now, who am I? But the weird thing about that is after a lifetime of promoting other people, I've been not very good at promoting myself because I, I kind of go the other way. Because, um, you know, a, a girl said to me the other day, she said, well, it's not bragging if you've done it, you know. And it, it still kind of makes sense. Really. <laughs> it is, but it's well, in how you tell the story. It's not bragging right. if you tell the story. 
starting with the obstacle, the challenge you face. And it's not bragging if you talk about the people who helped you along the way and who influenced you and the fact that you it didn't just come to you. So it, it's, it is bragging if you're just talking about it as if you did it all by yourself. It's bragging if you're talking about it from the perspective of all your successes without including some of what went wrong. Oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely. I said, I actually mentioned that in my book. I said, you know, everything I've ever done has never been about me. It's been about a team of people, you know. Um, exactly. I mean, you might lead the charge so as such. Think, when you think about someone who influenced you, just like the first person that comes to, you, to your mind, and that's not always a good, uh, let, let's put it this way. I have had people who have influenced me because I, I have succeeded out of spite for them because they were such negative people or, you know, had negative experiences with me. But um, when you think about somebody who really influenced you, who is that person? Oh, probably without even thinking, probably somebody like Bowie, because as an 18 year old, I, I watched him split up the spiders from Mars in front of me and was really annoyed with him because I thought, well, how can you do this? You know, how can you do this to me? Where's my next David Bowie record coming from? And then when I kind of, you know, go through the years, so to speak, and then 25 years later, I'm having my dinner with him and arranging his promotion. I mean, that goes back to that thing I said earlier. That doesn't happen to a kid from north of England. It makes you incredibly humble and mm -hmm. grateful for the opportunity that you had. But I don't think with a guy like that that, that I ever stopped learning. I mean, even if you look at like, and I might get a little bit, you know, rock and roll here with with you know just identifying it as a musician and stuff but i mean an artist like david bowie had one hit record in 10 years and and that was like space oddity you know so he he, he developed this myth of this alien rock star and then when he turned up he was every bit as good as he should be so he became a superstar with ziggy stardust around that period mm -hmm. um and then but the problem with it the everything that came with it, it became a heroin addict you know drinking and all that and everything and in that school of Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, all dead at 27. Bowie nipped it in the bud. He he broke up Ziggy Stardust, which meant that he didn't die as, tw as a 27-year-old, which they all right. did. He was smart enough to do that. Honestly, Sarah, who, who'd been waiting that long for success, would kill something off in, in its prime? Only somebody that knew that they could move on from it. That was then, this is now. That was his entire career was reinventing himself. And that happens in every business nowadays. But I don't think it happened when he was doing it. And he always right. did it. He didn't even die till he finished his album. I mean, I could go on forever because, you know, I mean, he actually wrote a song called Heroes, you know, but he, he, he had. And the other thing is, I mean, even in the 70s when, you know, Elton John and George Michael, nobody came out, especially in a country like America. It would have been the beginning of the end, you know. Um, right. But he, 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 how many kids benefited from, you know, who were struggling with the sexuality in the 70s um, from an artist like that, just not telling people if he was gay or straight, you know. He had right. so much to, to even, even when he met a man and he was with her for like 26 years and had a kid, he took time away to be a father that he didn't do first time round. He did the things that, you know, so he meant so much to him then. And he learned so much and he never stopped learning. I mean, even, mm -hmm. even a quote from him when he was dying, I don't know where I'm going, but I know it won't be boring. I mean, those things send shivers <laughs> up my back, you know. You know, we that can be awesome. heroes if just, if we can be heroes if just for one day. I mean, I wrote a, an article which which USA Today printed on the second anniversary of his death. And this is the hopeless romantic in me, in as much as the first paragraph was like, there really is a star man. He did come and meet me and he did blow my mind. Mm -hmm. And that's my story. And it's it, even saying it, I get a lump in yeah. my throat. And it's not like, look at me, I met David Bowie. That's nothing to do with it. It's right. like the ability to appreciate something like 50 years later. I mean, this last month was the 50th anniversary of that album, and it's as relevant wow. as ever. And it, it, probably more relevant, I mean, in yeah. some ways. You know what I'm. But what you I'm see, hearing... that, that's what I'm sorry. All I was going to say to round that bit off, Sarah, was the fact that, you know, that's what I meant about my mission to help keep the legacy alive of some of the greatest artists that never lived. This guy can't go away because people's children, grandchildren, great grandchildren can discover that through their going into their parents' record collection. And there's nothing like music to take you back to a time and a place and invariably with a person. I don't care if you're into sport or anything. You don't remember something from a touchdown or a goal. A song comes on, boof, 
we've all seen it firsthand experience. You remember where you were, who you were with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that what was really inspiring was his choices to, to understand where he was going. So being able to learn from something to say, I'm seeing all these people dying around me because they're overdosing and this is not the life that I want. And, and making that choice on the spot and having the integrity to choose that. And the same thing with, he missed out on his other kid and he was not going to make that same mistake again. And the integrity of those choices and his persistence and perseverance in doing that, those things. And that's, that's how you're living your life. You are persistent, you're motivated, and you want to continue to have those positive influences and bring other people's positive influences to, to life for people who may not have heard of them. Absolutely. And he also had that self-belief, which we all need. I mean, he honestly felt he could do it. When, and he's, he's not worried about, I mean, Richard Branson in a, in a similar type of way. I mean, Richard Branson has had so many companies that have failed, but we all know about Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Records and all those type of things and stuff. And Branson being this like billionaire celebrity character, you know, still goes up air in balloons and off to the, you know, into the moon and play up into space. You no, know. but the thing is, he, uh, he said one thing. He said, I've, uh, he said, I don't mind if something fails as long as I'm uh, as long as I'm okay putting the Virgin um, label on it. If it fails, that's fine. So he doesn't have any regrets. And I heard that as well from a guy I interviewed who used to be in the Icicle Works. He, he he was telling me a story about a guy who was in Echo and the Bunnymen, wrote his memoirs, and some somebody said to him do you have any regrets? And he said, I don't really have any regrets. I just wish I'd have given myself enough time to enjoy it. Whereas uh-huh. David Bowie did do that by changing things, you know, even writing a song that was changes, you know, right. Th- there's an amazing program on Apple TV that, that a girl I know um, just told me about a few weeks ago, and I've watched all episodes and it's, it's called 1971, the year that music changed everything. And it's absolutely amazing because you look at things nowadays, it's kids march in the streets against guns and stuff now. In those days, it was like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young with the Kent State University, four dead in Ohio. You know, even things like, you know, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? The Who won't get fooled again. Lennon, all the singers were making statements, you know, like the times they are changing. Bob Dylan, I mean, they didn't change the Vietnam, he didn't stop the Vietnam War, but he made kids aware. And I think when musicians come out, even Neil Young now just coming out in his late 70s about Josh Rogan and Spotify, um, he can do that because he makes more money from one gig than an entire year off Spotify. But they're so passionate about making statements because people, that's where we come back to that word influencers. They're in a position of responsibility where kids look up to them. And we do have the ones that abuse it and are the ones that really do make a difference in those people's lives because they're, they're at that tender age where they can veer one way or the other. And and that was kind of replaced by reality stars, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Kardashians fan, you know. I don't know why. No. Yeah, I don't know why somebody whose father defended O.J. Simpson is a megastar. I really don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't get it either. I'm, They're famous I'm, for being famous. I am definitely very puzzled by all of that. <laughs> but, you know, that again, it comes back to... What can we do as people who think about these things and talk about these things to improve that for others and and help them see that this is not their life and that they can be influenced by more positive things and to not go blindly by it. But I think that's all that we can do is have those tools. But what what you're doing with your podcast is you're 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 bringing that to people. They need to go away way digest it and put it into their own world you know um and, and some of it will add up and some of it won't you know uh, but the thing is i think you know and and i don't think i'd find myself using these words but there is an advantage in getting older because you do stop to think these things through and you do have something to compare it to mm-hmm. um and i always think you know i wish my mother was alive so i could just walk up to her and and thank her for giving birth when she did because I have no regrets for, you know, but having three, you know, grandsons under the age of 10 and stuff, I worry about the world they're growing up in. And, you know, there's so much diversity and things that are out there that, you know, I mean, with 
you know, when you reached out to me and I saw what you were doing, I mean, all I can do is turn up for what you want. Um, and in what I'm doing in my little world, I'm trying to bring um, the message and, and what I learned from music. And because in my lessons learned from rock and roll ebooks, I'll be talking about, you know, it's like the insights collection, insights into artist development, insights into communication, insights into interpersonal skills. But in the same way that lawyers have like case studies, I have my case studies where mm. I can relate it to an experience an artist went through. Um, and, and that will hopefully be a benefit, you know, for a book and things. Mm. I think, you know, you really, you know, as you get older, the, I respect people who put something back, you know, um, mm. rather than people just collect vast amounts of money and then try and screw people out of more money i mean if you start something i mean you saw the you saw the furore over olivia newton john dying for, mm -hmm. to exist 30 years with what she had and to make you know women with breast cancer feel people cared is an incredible achievement you know she definitely um, left an incredible legacy without a doubt and it's it'll still be there and she did it because she believed in it she didn't do it to make money or be famous or you know, she had her legacy with Greece and the whole thing and everything. But no, she, she was she was a first hand, you know, sufferer of something like that. Incredible to think she lasted as she did, but she didn't think at forty two, I've got breast cancer. Why me? She right. just got up and did something about it, and she got another thirty years. And now, you know, so many people just were so heart wrenched when they found out that she'd passed away. She was only seventy three, but she did something with her life. She didn't she think. Did. She did. So, Tony, for our listeners, um, and I will have all these links in the blog post associated with this podcast. The show notes are going to be on elkinsconsulting.com along with this podcast episode. Tony, um, what do you want people to know about your work that's coming out? And that's well, out. I, I have a book that, uh, that only just came out. The, the irony of that was it, it was due to come out the back end of last year, but I put it back because the publishing company had some other music books. Mm -hmm. And then I had knee replacement surgery, which is terribly rock and roll. Right. Um, so I kind of been have laid up for about four months with my legs tucked under the desk, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of brought it out. And ironically enough, I mean, two of the major things that I talk about in the book are you two, because I went with them right from the very beginning. I'm David Bowie. And in on June the 19th, uh, it was the 50th anniversary of Ziggy Stardust. And on June the 5th, it was the 39th anniversary of Red Rock. So they're major events in rock that just happened to have coincided with my book. So I have my book, which is, I think it's inspirational in as much as it's just a kid from the north of England growing up and showing his appreciation for the, for the path that life led him, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, like I say, I do do a podcast, which is called Moments of Rock and Roll, where, you know, people are sharing like um, things that happened in their life. And they become incredibly inspiring because, like I said to you before, the premise being that if I'm listening to somebody telling their story and I like it, then why wouldn't other people like it? So exactly. I have the ability to share that through through the power of podcasts and things. Um, I do a radio show, which is just trying to turn people onto music. That's more just a hobby for a friend. And I've done it before. Um, and I really want to spend my time kind of reading and writing, but now we're doing like the Facebook reels that I want to be doing and stuff. I'll, I'll be kind of seducing people in the nicest possible way into kind of luring them into my world. So they get a little bit curious and want to find out a little bit more. And it sounds, again, it sounds a little cliched, but if, if, if one of those people can just go and discover David Bowie's result of it and get something out of it, then mm -hmm. I've kind of done my bit. And 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 I, I do feel that that you know, being able to just go and because with those Facebook real things, you can you can come out of it as a as a when I say a personality, I don't mean a desire to be famous. I mean somebody who's a real person that just right. happens to be conveying stories that they otherwise wouldn't have heard. And it makes those artists real, not just like, you know, rock stars. I mean, rock stars is such a trendy term nowadays. No, but it helps people see the multi dimensions of a person that they may only see one side of. So yeah, I, I, I can definitely appreciate that. And I try and I, I try and you know simplify it like like those from my you know, and funny enough, I mean, I wanted to kind of write a book on 
my own quotations because I found myself reading things like stuff like, you know, old enough to remember, young enough to dream, you know. And I wrote something <laughs> during the course of the book that, that you know, if you, if you believe it enough, it won't be hard to convince others. So they're kind of, right. they're motivational things that kind of just come out of my mouth without even thinking because it's kind of like what happened to me, you know. I, I was fortunate right. enough to be around real influencers who impacted me and I never forgot the things that they did. And I always say to people that the the easiest artists to work with are the biggest because they know it's not all about them. That's cool. Well, They're not me- late. They don't turn up wasted or anything like that, you know, and they don't become obnoxious and this and that and everything. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry if I'd veered off into the abyss at times, but, you know, I'm not going to change that. <laughs> no, no, no. This has been these days. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you but, see, even, even like now, this we wouldn't have come together for this if um, a friend hadn't put me in touch with Dennis. Dennis had the ability to introduce me to all the right people. So all of a sudden, mm-hmm. we're in each other's world now. And mm-hmm. that's about like the ability to, you know, to to c- connect with people and communicate, not just to have as many friends as you have or get as many likes as you were saying and stuff, but just to find people that you can relate to, that you can, you know, hopefully we've both learned a little bit out of this that we've shared with others as well. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I'm not trying to be anything that I'm not. I'm, you know, so if somebody thinks, my God, he doesn't half prattle on, then so be it. Probably the same on the next podcast. <laughs> well, I definitely have learned that not everyone is my audience. So I hear that. Tony, this has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate your time and your energy while we've been recording this. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. And thank you very much for the invitation, Sarah. Onwards and upwards, madame. Thanks for listening to Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. I'm putting some finishing touches on a new course. Get the offer job interview storytelling that will be available online in early fall 2022. It is so important that this course is truly relevant, helpful, and useful for my clients. So I'd love your help. Would you please email me at sarah at elkinsconsulting.com or complete the form that's linked on the blog post associated with this podcast episode to add your ideas for the course? I'd love to know your biggest challenges when it comes to job interviews, so the content of my online course is exactly what you need. I appreciate your help. Thanks in advance.